Good morning. Open your Bibles, if you would, please, to Genesis chapter 16. Our Bible reading today will be the entirety of this chapter, which we hope to be able to cover in the next few minutes. Genesis chapter 16. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So, after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went in to Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? And she said, I am fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone, and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God of seeing. For she said, Truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well was called Be'er Lahai Roi. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. Let's pray. Father, we come to you together this morning, gathered for worship, gathered to sing your praises, gathered to pray together, gathered to hear your word proclaimed. Father, we worship you this morning. 
We call to mind your saving works on our behalf, and we praise you. And even as we approach this passage, which deals with an uncomfortable subject, deals with difficulty in relationship, Father, we ask that you would work even from this text in our hearts by your Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. There's a uh, reason that most families with small children don't like to take long trips together. And everyone who has had small children and taken long trips knows what that is. That's because children are not great at waiting, right? And so you take off on the trip and you've almost made it out of the valley before the question is asked the first time, are we there yet, right? Or how long until we get there? And, and you as the driver know that you've got three days ahead of you <laughs> that you're going to be driving and they're already being asked the question, are we there yet? Kids just get tired of waiting. And of course, adults get tired of waiting too, but usually adults know how to put on a little bit better face. We know to, how to pretend like Uh, We don't mind waiting, like we're being all patient and whatnot, right? Well, our passage today is about a couple of adults who got tired of waiting and, uh, and gave up on that whole project and decided to take matters into their own hands. And uh, just as a a way of um, kind of telling you where we've come from and where we're going, uh, this will be kind of a lone message on Genesis, probably for the remainder of the year. Uh, because we're coming up on Advent season and we're going to be focused uh, for the, uh, the month of December on uh, issues specifically related to the coming of Christ, why He came, uh, in what context, and, and what was the significance, and all of that kind of stuff. And so we'll, we'll be talking about Genesis here and there in the next month, but this is going to be the last uh, passage uh, that we're going to focus on in detail from Genesis, at least for the remainder of this year. And it's an odd one, isn't it? It's one that when you're, you know, reading the Bible to your children, you, you, you kind of have to kick your gear, your mind into high gear to be able to explain to your children what's going on in such a way that uh, doesn't raise too many questions that you can't answer or you don't want to answer, right? It's a difficult and an awkward uh, passage. It's an awkward story. And, and really, that's the case uh, because of the fact that, as we read, they, they've been in the land 10 years, they've had the promise from God that they were going to have offspring, and they've had that promise for 10 years, and nothing has happened. The the passage begins, Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, right? So that's the problem. That's what we need to take note of in our story. If we, if we remember all the way back in the beginning of chapter 12, the promise was given already that God was going to give offspring to Abram. Time has gone by. Chapters have gone by. No offspring. There's Abram, and there, uh, there's Sarai, and there's all this history, the things they've gone for, but there is no child, right? So that's going to be the, the crux of what's going on. The author is telling us what we need to pay attention to, that they have no offspring. Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no offspring, but she had a female servant, an Egyptian woman named Hagar. We've already been introduced to all the main characters, at least in this first paragraph. And so, 
in that context, with that difficulty and having been waiting uh, that long, how, that much time with the promises of God hanging over them and, and, and the, the anticipation, the desire to have a child, and yet they don't have a child, and uh, that's a problem. And now you can see that they're beginning to look around, and particularly in this case, Sarai is beginning to look around and find other ways, look for other ways to help God uh, keep this promise, right? And so Sarai comes up with an idea that, that literally no woman since this time has, has ever thought of, right? Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. That is very unusual. That is a very unusual notion. And the odd thing is, it's not that unusual a notion for this time and in this area of the world. There is precedent. Other women have thought of this first. There are laws in place in surrounding nations that make it so that a, a woman who uh, can't bear children, or perhaps she doesn't want to bear any more children, uh, she, she can't bear children for her husband, and so in order for her to bear more children for her husband without herself doing it, she can give her handmaid to be a surrogate. And the children that will be born by that handmaid will be counted as the mistress's children. So she will have born her husband children, as it were. And so this was a means they had put into place, kind of a surrogacy uh, kind of concept, and it seems utterly foreign and strange to us, but there are laws on the books in surrounding nations at this time saying, well, this is how you do it. And so it was, it was a thing that in that time and in that, that day uh, wasn't terribly impossible, wasn't terribly bizarre, though it seems bizarre to us. And, and as, as bizarre as that seems, we see the next words there uh, in our passage in verse 2. Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So she comes up with this idea that to us seems crazy, to us seems uh, completely foreign, and Abram says, okay, and he goes along with it. Another very unusual thing, another uh, very strange uh, decision that we see Abram make. And so, after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, we have the strangest sentence in all of the Bible. Sarai... Abram's wife took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. If you don't get dizzy in that sentence, then uh, your reading comprehension is excellent. Okay? If that doesn't confuse you, uh, even if not mentally, but in your heart, like what kind, of, uh, what kind of struggle had to have gone on in Sarai's mind that she would think this is a good plan? Well, she's She's been given the promise. Her husband's been given the promise. She's been waiting all this time. She's been going along with uh, all the stuff that Abram has gone through. And, and remember, she herself was, was kind of, you know, given sort of as a, a bride almost uh, down in Egypt a couple of chapters earlier. They've been through, through some things, but still no child. She's desperate. She's terribly, terribly desperate for 
this child to be born, for God's promise to be fulfilled. We see in verse 4, we're going to recover some of this and make some, some observations on this, but he went into Hagar, she conceived. So she's basically at this point, uh, she's been given as sort of a second wife, kind of a concubine kind of concept. Um, this was probably a new living arrangement that had been uh, come into in this situation. So you, you see polygamy entering the picture, and, and it's, a, it's a very bizarre situation that's going to uh, bear some consequences. And we see the consequences right off the bat there in verse 4, don't we? When she saw, when Hagar saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. Right? So here you've got this woman who is a servant. She's probably a young woman. She, by the way, may have come into the family while they were down in Egypt just a couple of chapters earlier. And she's a younger woman, and she's, uh, she's Sarai's maid, and Sarai cooks up this idea and, and gives Hagar to Abram. And after they conceive a child together, you see a switch flipped. You see suddenly the one who has been the handmaid, the one who has been subservient, the one who has been submitted to her mistress, Sarai, all of a sudden, now she has been successful, where Sarai has always been a failure. And you see a struggle in their relationship. You see strain in their relationship that uh, we have no evidence that it was ever there before. But as soon as she realizes that she has conceived, she begins to look with contempt on her mistress. Conflict enters the picture. There is contempt that happens right after the conception of this baby. And see verse 5, And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. <laughs> okay, I, this is not a funny story, but there's a whole lot of irony, right? That whose idea was it? Sarai's idea, right? She had the idea, and she gave, she gave Hagar, and Hagar is just kind of going along with it. We, we assume we don't read much from her, but as soon as the baby is conceived, now all of a sudden, Hagar is in a position to dominate, in a sense, at least emotionally, over her mistress, Sarai. So what does Sarai do? She blames Abram. Was it, was it Abram's fault? Well, yes, but no. You see a breakdown in relationship, and you see Sarai begins to blame Abram and, uh, and blames it on him and says, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. Verse 6, but Abram said to Sarah, Behold, your servant is in your power. She's in your hand. Do to her as you please. And then Sarah dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. So the, the conflict is brought to Abram, and he's blamed for this thing, and we're going to see that in many ways he is to blame for this thing, though it wasn't his idea. The conflict is presented to him, and he says, Well, do what you need to do. He acquiesces again. The, the idea, the, 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 the ill-advised ill plan, the, the terrible idea was brought up to him. He should have said, 
No way. That's ridiculous. He should have vetoed immediately when Sarai brought the plan, but he didn't. He said, okay. He went along with it. Well, now this conflict is brewing, and, and uh, in his own household, his two wives are fighting with one another, and, and he has an opportunity to settle this situation, but he doesn't. He says, do what you got to do. He acquiesces yet again, playing the role of the passive husband. And so Sarai is harsh with her, and Hagar ends up fleeing, right? So those are the events that went on. Now, that's a confusing story. That's an emotionally challenging story. It's one that's hard for us to wrap our minds around relationships that could be like that, but we've seen it before. We've read this story before, and I don't, I don't just mean the last time you started uh, your Bible reading plan and you got through Genesis chapter 16, and I don't just mean that you, know, you started reading your Bible when I encouraged you to read Genesis. You've been reading it since then. We've read this story before in Genesis 3. It's the same story. What do I mean? Well, I'm going to point out a couple of very uh, important similarities here that, that the author has in mind and that we should catch. Notice in verse 2, what is, what is Sarai's attitude towards God? Sarai says to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. The Lord has prevented me from bearing children. She accuses God. Accuses God. Now, had God prevented her from bearing children? Well, no. Anytime a child is conceived, it is the act of God. That is God working to create a life. He's not preventing her as if He's standing against her. He knows the time is coming when He's going to give her a child. Far from standing against her, He's made promises to her. He's going to make it be miraculous and wonderful at an age where no one bears children. She's going to be blessed above all women. But in her mind, God is against her. God is being stingy. He could have given me a child already, and He hasn't. He's preventing me from bearing a child. She's blaming God, just like Eve blamed God. Remember Eve's response to the serpent? When the serpent asked her, did God really say? Remember she rewords God's commands? God had said, you can eat from any of these trees. See the abundance of these trees? They're yours. There's just the one that you can't eat from. But all of this, eat all you want. And how does she interpret it in Genesis chapter 3? Yeah, God said we can eat from the trees, but from this one, she ignores the abundant provision of God. She has her eyes fixed on that which is forbidden to her, that which she does not have access to. So Sarai accuses God just like Eve accused God. Sarai accuses, her of prevent, accuses God of preventing her from bearing children. Another point of commonality. From whom did the temptation to the husband come? From the wife, again, just like in Eden. Right? The, the serpent came in and spoke to Eve, and through Eve, the temptation came to Adam. In our passage here, we don't hear the voice of the serpent he doesn't literally slither in, but the temptation, because of the duration of time, the waiting, the anticipation, the, the, the sense of need that Sarai has to bear the child, 
causes the temptation, and through her the temptation comes to her husband. So we see a replay of Eden as well. And what happens, thirdly, what happens when the temptation comes through Sarai to Abram, the end of verse 2, Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. We've heard that phrase before. Go back to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, this is a passage we should read very often. It's reflected very frequently in Scripture, and this passage is no exception. What does Genesis 3 and verse 17 say? God is speaking to Adam, rendering judgment on what has happened, and he says, because you have listened to the voice of your wife. The phrase occurs the first time there in Genesis 3, occurs the second time here in Genesis chapter 16, that there's There's something about the way Abram listened to his wife's voice and something about the way Adam listened to his wife's voice that's the problem here. So lest you get the idea, husband, that the application at this point is don't listen to your wife's voice, (laughs) that's not the application. We should listen to our wives, right? They they will probably remind us when we don't, right? But here, the way they have listened to the voice of their wife is the problem. And the author is bringing it up. He's using the exact same phrase, and this is just the second time that it is used in Scripture. There's more. Look at verse 3, back in Genesis chapter 16. So Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, and Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. Took and gave. Go back to Genesis 3. Genesis 3 and verse 6, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that was a delight to the eyes and that that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and also gave some to her husband who was with her. The repetition of those those verbs in that way tells us that the author has in mind these two stories are connected. And what's the result? What's the consequence in Uh, this family's life. We see in verse 5, Sarai said to Abram, may the wrong done to me be on you. Immediately you've got blame shifting and broken relationship. The harmony that was there between the two, such as it was, which is actually pretty significant for a couple going through these things, that harmony is broken down. There begins to be a blame shifting. They accuse one another. She, whose idea it was, points to her husband and says, it's your fault. And then you've got Hagar in the mix, and Hagar is, is uh, showing contempt to Sarai. You've got Sarai responding by mistreating Hagar. You've got a broken down family. You've got a break in the relationship. And you remember from Genesis chapter 3 what happened. When they had taken of the fruit, they had eaten, and the sound of the Lord God came. They ran and hid. There had been close relationship with them and God, and now that was broken. And when God calls them out, and says, Adam, did you eat of this fruit? What does Adam say? The wife you gave me, she is the problem. So the Lord turns to Eve, and what does Eve say? The serpent, he tricked me. It's a breakdown in relationship. Right? So there's a, there, this is a common scene 
Uh, We've read Genesis chapter 16 before. We read it in Genesis chapter 3. And I want to make some observations, kind of a a point of doctrine uh, almost from this passage right here, from the recognizing that this is a retelling of an earlier story, as it were. New events, new people, same story. The sin Adam and Eve fell in is common to man. And the means by which, or the path by which they fell into sin is common to man as well. You can see it again and again and again. We have Sarai being frustrated. She's begun to blame God as if God is holding back from her. Have you ever felt like that? You ever gotten into a situation where you feel like, well, if the Lord would just provide, then I wouldn't have to, right? We begin to blame God. I tell the story of, uh, to, to my own shame, when we were expecting one of our children, and uh, I had just started a new job, and my insurance was to kick in the week after the baby was born. So all of you know, who are familiar with insurance, that meant I got to pay for all of it, right? The, the, I got to pay for the whole delivery and the doctors and all that kind of stuff out of pocket. Well, the Lord had given us a, a tax return that was pretty significant, and we praised God for that tax return. That was back in the spring. Baby was born in the summer, and all of that tax return plus some went right to the doctor, right to the hospital. And then the next week, insurance kicked in, and I was bitter. If the Lord had just set His time right, if He had just, if he had just looked at the calendar and understood that we needed insurance to kick in a week earlier, we would have been spared all kinds of money. And I was bitter, legitimately bitter against God. I was actually, in my heart, mad at God's timing. How dare He? I mean, I know He's good and all, but how dare He? And that's kind of Sarai's attitude here. How dare He? He's been preventing me from having a baby. And so she gets frustrated and she cooks up this idea. Well, that, that story about the birth of our child, it, it kept going. I was bitter because I had to pay those bills out of pocket. And this was when I was in college, and I was grad school, and, and money like, didn't grow on trees. You know, I know it grows on trees now, you know, but back in the day, <laughs> back in the day, it was tough, and I was mad at God. And then two months later, a child came down with a very significant health issue that required 10 days of hospitalization, that required major surgery, all covered by insurance. And so my bitterness against God, that His timing was terrible, that He, he could have just moved, moved that up a little bit and, and I wouldn't have had to pay for the measly you know, $3,000 or whatever it was for the delivery of the baby. If God would just done that right, I, I would have been able to do something different with that money. And the Lord had a larger plan going on. And he paid for major surgery. He paid for a, an extended hospital stay. God was gracious to us, and here I was embittered. And Sarai is embittered. And so she concocts this plan, right? She, she sees a, a way out, uh, a way to help God meet this need. It's as if In my retelling of the story, we lived in Chicago at the time, but, you know, if we lived in Nevada, I might have been tempted 
to go down and try and gamble some money and make up some money that it would help to pay for things, right? Now, I'm from Nevada. I've never gambled anything at all because I'm too cheap, right? When I look at the budget of the state and I realize that so much income comes from gambling, like I'm not going to contribute to that. I know that the state makes money on that. But, but it would be as if I decided, all right, here's what I'm going to do, honey. I'm going to take this little bit of money that we've got and I'm going to go gamble and see if I can make some real money. Well, is that, is that culturally acceptable in Nevada? No. People are doing it right now. Yeah, it's culturally acceptable. I mean, you guys might frown on it if I miss church, you know, or whatever, right? But culturally, it's acceptable, and the idea that she came up with was culturally acceptable, even though it wasn't in line with God's design. Had nothing to do with what God had in mind. She comes up with an idea, and for his part, Abram assented to this wicked plan, passively went along with it, and then when it all blew up, he kind of washed his hands of it and said, well, do what you got to do, honey. Got yourself into this mess. No leadership whatsoever, and the result is sin, separation, contempt, hostility. And by the way, it results in long-term consequences. They had no idea about at this point. But Ishmael is going to be uh, the child who is born from this union, and Ishmael is going to come up again and again in the history of Israel. In Genesis chapter 37, if you can flash forward a little bit in your mind and you think about Joseph, and uh, this is later on generations, and Joseph gets sold into slavery... Who is it hauls him down into Egypt? Ishmaelites. They're okay with, with, with buying a boy and trafficking this, this, uh, this slave to sell him into Egypt. It's going to be a problem. So problems arise from this. So a quick question from having looked through this first portion here. Are Genesis 3 and Genesis 16 telling us that men should not listen to their wives? No. All right, let's just put that to rest. That's not what it's saying. They are telling us, however, that we need to be watchful for temptation as it can come and strike in our most vulnerable areas. Temptation doesn't usually happen when a guy walked in wearing a shirt, you know, who says something about uh, evil and death and down with God, and then that guy tries to get you to, you know, buy into something. That's not normally the way temptation happens. It comes in a vulnerable place, a vulnerable relationship, perhaps. We are most susceptible to temptation in areas or relationships that we hold most dear. In other words, wives, you have an outsized influence on your husband. You have a profound influence on your husband. And that is great power. And all of you who've seen Superman, or uh, excuse me, Spider-Man, not Superman, Spider-Man, all of you who've seen Spider-Man know that with great power comes great responsibility. And that's the case here. So, the heart of your husband trusts you. You're in an intimate, vulnerable relationship with your husband. That's the influence you wield. You need to be aware of that. Husbands, you need to be aware that God has given you the role of leadership in your family, and you will be held accountable for that. In Genesis 3 and 16, we have clear examples of husbands thoughtlessly going along and giving in to sinful suggestions when they should have been giving correction, good it should have been giving leadership. But they're just yes men. So what's the point of application here? Wives, give careful thought and prayer 
to how you are influencing your husband. The heart of your husband trusts you, and you are in a uniquely powerful position. You have the ability to misuse that trust, to tear down your household around your ears like the woman in Proverbs 14. So be careful and prayerful about how you use your influence that you have with your husband. Husbands, your application. Give careful thought and prayer to how you lead your family. Usually, no doubt, your wife is an excellent wife, more precious than jewels, who brings you good and not harm all of your days and all the things that are found in Proverbs 31. But just as you and I, men, have the capacity to be like Adam and Abram, our wives have the capacity to misuse their influence, as did Eve and Sarai. So be careful and prayerful that you are providing godly leadership to your family. That's the role that God has given you and for which He will equip you as you continue to grow in Christ. That's the first paragraph. And into this mess comes the angel of the Lord, a faithful messenger of God. So we finally turn from that story and we begin to deal sort of with the consequences. But the first few words in verse 7, the angel of the Lord found her. Who's the angel of the Lord? If you've been really paying attention, you realize that we haven't talked about the angel of the Lord at all yet in the Bible. This is the first mention of the angel of the Lord. Well, who is he? Well, the angel of the Lord, I believe, is the, the, the Logos, the second person of the Trinity. I believe he's pre-incarnate Christ. And I say this because of the following reasons. First of all, he speaks with God's authority. When he speaks, verse 13, she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. God had spoken, the angel of the Lord had spoken, had said some things, uh, etc., and she recognizes he spoke with the authority of Yahweh. Verse 13. And in return, also verse 13, he is addressed as God. She called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, of Yahweh who spoke to her, you are a God of seeing. She's equating the angel of the Lord with Yahweh. He's addressed as God. And, by the way, he possesses divine attributes. We see that he's all-knowing. Verse 8, don't be distracted when God asks a question. God is not seeking information. God is not trying to learn from the person when he asks a question. Look here in verse 8. He said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from? Where are you going? He's not asking for his benefit. Oh, I saw you here and I was just wondering where you came from. He's asking for her benefit. He starts off knowing her name, knowing exactly that she is a servant of Sarai, etc. He knows about her. He knew the details of her situation. You can see that in many other places in Scripture, for example, in Judges 13 and verse 3. But we see elsewhere in Scripture, in, in Exodus chapter 23, that this angel of the Lord does divine works, that it is actually the angel of the Lord who has guarded and led the people to conquer the land of Canaan later on. That's the power that he has. And in Joshua chapter 5 and verse 14, he accepts worship. The angel of the Lord accepts worship from Joshua. And in Zechariah 12 and 
verse 8, his name is interchangeable with Elohim, the name for God. This is Zechariah chapter 12 and verse 8. On that day, the Lord will protect the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the feeblest among them on that day shall be like David and the house of David shall be like God, like the angel of the Lord going before them. The names are interchangeable. Right? So this messenger of the Lord, this angel of the Lord that we read about in verse 7 and carrying on through this passage here, this is, this is the Logos, the divine Son of God, God the Son pre-incarnate Christ here who is on the scene. That's who He is. So this is significant. The angel of the Lord shows up and we see what He is like. The faithful messenger of God is actually an appearance of God the Son, the second person of the Trinity. And He's come to work in the lives of these people, this family that dearly needs His work. And so He shows up. Now, I said this is the first appearance of the angel of the Lord in the Bible. But there's something else extremely significant about this. What does he say to her when he shows up? The angel of the Lord found her by the spring of water in the wilderness, a spring that is on the way to Shur, and he said, Hagar. Now, you and I may not think that's a big deal, but this is the only instance, so scholars say, I haven't read everything to know that, they say this is the only instance in all of ancient Near Eastern literature where deity calls a woman by her name. The only one ever in ancient Near Eastern literature. Now, I think there's irony connected with that because Christianity gets a, a, a bad rap in our, in our culture today as if it's misogynistic in some way. And all the way through, you see women being affirmed and protected. And here, the angel of the Lord comes to her, finds her, and calls her by her name. And this is the only instance of that ever in the ancient literature. So he calls her by name. And what does he tell her? Hagar, servant of Sarai, he asks her the question, where have you come from? Where are you going? She said, I'm fleeing from my mistress Sarai. And what does the angel say to her? In verse 9, return to your mistress and submit to her. Well, now, wait a minute. I thought the uh, situation that she was fleeing from was where she was being mistreated, that Sarai was treating her in a harsh fashion. So here is God saying she should go back into that abusive relationship? What does it say? Return to your mistress and submit to her. What caused the friction between her and her mistress? When she saw she had conceived, she had contempt towards Sarai. Her own attitude towards her mistress was a part of the problem that caused the friction between the two. He's not saying go back into that context where you're going to be beaten and mistreated. He's saying go, go back and repent. And I think there's a, there's a point here for us in the difficult situations that we often face. We, we are quick to look at the wrongs that others have done to us. And when a situation has gone south, we're quick to identify the, the, the fault and give it to other people. And some situations, that's just the case, but not usually. Usually, we've had some role to play in that going south. Usually, we can go back to this, that situation and ourselves come in with humility, repentance, submitted, and a situation can be resolved. If we would, if we would own our part in broken relationships, we would realize, wow, I've got, I've, got a lot of, I've got a lot of part that I could repent for. 
a lot of healing could come about by my own returning and submission. And so that's what the angel of the Lord tells her, is to go back and do that. He's not sending her back into a dangerous situation. He's telling her how to deal with that situation. And then the angel of the Lord said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. Now, you've heard that kind of language before. That's the same kind of promises that God had made to Abram. You're going to have so many children like the stars of the sky. You won't be able to count them. And now you have the same kind of language being used with Hagar right here. Though, though her son is not going to be the son who will bear the promise of Abram's seed, he will still know a measure of blessing just by being Abram's physical descendant. That he will be blessed in his own way. He will multiply greatly. And so you see the statement here made about Ishmael. The angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant, shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He will be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. And that's a, that's a prophecy about what Ishmael is going to be like, what the Ishmaelites are going to be like, and, and they're going to be a, a Bedouin people. They're going to live in the desert, and they're going to be a, a, a fractious people and a difficult people, and they're going to cause problems and, and be, be uh, uh, causing problems for the nation of Israel on into the future. But that's the statement they made there about Ishmael. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God of seeing. For she said, truly, here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore, the well was named something in Hebrew that's tough to pronounce, Be'er Lachai Roi. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son. Notice the repetition in this sentence. What's the emphasis in this sentence? Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of the son whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Who's excluded from that? The one who wanted the child. The one who concocted the idea in the first place. The one who came up with the idea of finding a surrogate to bear a child for Abram that would be counted as Sarai's. And this sentence, using repetition and, and kind of uh, an awkward construction, is driving home the point again and again and again. There's Hagar represented. There's Abram represented. There's the son represented. But the son is the one Hagar bore, not Sarai. So Sarai still doesn't get her way at the end. And we, we're, we're told later on as we continue our story, it becomes very clear in chapter 17 that it, the child of promise will not only be the one born of Abram. The Ishmael was born of Abram. The child of promise will be the one born of Abram and Sarai. There's no way you can fix this, Sarai. There's no way you can hire someone to play this role for you. We're still awaiting the promise. And so we, we talked about a, a family here who has trouble waiting. They've been waiting a long time for this baby. They don't like it. They're, uh, they're not very good at waiting. And, and, uh, and Sarai gets impatient, and we see this whole thing come about. And at the end of the chapter, they're still waiting for the child. It's not been resolved. It's not been fixed. In, instead, there's actually a breakdown in the relationship. Now there's, there's almost a second wife who's in the mix competing. And now you've got, you've got Ishmael who's going to be a problem for the child of promise. And they're still waiting. 
Chapter 16 tells us a lot about waiting on the Lord and how not to do it. So, as we read through this, as we think about this, anytime we read Scripture, we should always look uh, to see what our passage tells us about Christ. If I came away and we just talked about being patient, that'd be a good message, right? We need to be patient. We need to learn how to heal relationships. We need to learn how to go and repent before one another. We need to learn how to seek unity and, and, and wait on the Lord and those sorts of things. We need to, to do those things, and those are legitimate. But we understand that when we're talking about Scripture, Scripture is headed somewhere. And the promise to Abram is headed somewhere. It's about Christ, ultimately. And so what does our passage tell us about Christ? Where is He in this passage? Well, First of all, he's the angel of the Lord. He appears in the passage, and he's called the angel of the Lord. And that's a powerful thing. That's a, there's, a, there's an interesting juxtaposition here of uh, two seeds, as it were. You've got the seed of the flesh, the attempts that, that, that Abram and, and, and Sarai and Hagar made to have this child right there represented in Ishmael. And speaking to the mother of Ishmael, you have actually the one who is ultimately going to be the child of promise, Jesus himself, the angel of the Lord speaking into that context. You've actually got both there on the page at the same time. But I think there's, I think there's something else that we can learn about Jesus from this passage, and that comes from the names that are used. There are a couple of names given. I don't, I don't mean Hagar and and, and Sarai and things like that, but the names that are given in the passage. Look at verse 11. Behold, you are pregnant, shall bear a son, you shall call his name Ishmael. Now, you've probably got a little number or a little letter or a little note there in your Bible sending you down to the bottom of the page to tell you what that Hebrew word means. Ishmael means God hears, is what my note says. But even if you didn't have that note, you have the text that says, you shall call his name Ishmael. Why? Because the Lord has listened to your affliction. The meaning of the name is given right there. The Lord has listened to your affliction. But that's not the only name that's given in this passage either. Look at verse 13. So, Hagar called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God of seeing. El Roi. You are a God of seeing. Here we learn two things about God, two things about this angel of the Lord, about Jesus Himself. One is that He hears. He listens. And secondly, He sees. Or as she puts it, He looks after me. See, we're to understand by the giving of these two names that the Lord heard her groaning in her affliction. And he saw with compassion the distress that she was in. And he responded. That God is not cold and distant. Yes, God is above all things and he's all-knowing and he's all-powerful. And he sees and he hears. And he has compassion. He didn't just leave her to wander in the wilderness. It seems like she was trying to make her way back to Egypt. Back to what she knew. And he didn't leave her there. He came to her. He addressed her. He blessed her. He responded with compassion. He saw and he heard. 
And that same pattern, by the way, is going to repeat using very similar language centuries later. As we fast forward from where we are in Genesis chapter 16, we see that the, the family does eventually multiply, and, and because of uh, what God has done through Joseph, the people, uh, now 70 in number, go down into the land of Egypt, and there they are kept. And they become slaves over time, and they multiply, and they become millions. They're there for 400 years. And what does it say in Exodus about how God responded to that? Exodus chapter 2, we read this. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery, and they cried out for help. Does that sound too different from Hagar? Sounds very similar to Hagar. And their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning. And God remembered His covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God saw the people of Israel. Was God aware? Does God need to hear things? He doesn't have ears that function the way ours do, where vibration comes and it moves the little things inside our... He doesn't have that. He knows all things. Does He need to open His eyes and see and, 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 and discern color and, and light and movement? No. He knows all things. He doesn't take in information. This is language used to talk about God's compassion and God's mercy. He heard their groaning. He saw the people of Israel, and God knew. He knew them relationally as a nation and what He was going to do. He acted. And what did He do in response? Well, He sent Moses. He didn't just say, wow, that's terrible that they're going through that hard time. I'll pray for them. I'll send them a card. Right? Please pray for us. Please send cards. And God does so much more than that. He sends Moses, who's going to usher in Israel's redemption from their Egyptian slavery. God responded by sending a deliverer. He saw their condition. And he responded by sending a deliverer. And nearly 2,000 years after our account, an angel of the Lord visited another young woman with very similar language. His words actually are strikingly similar to the words that we read today. That angel told Mary, Luke chapter 1, you shall conceive and bear a son and call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So once again, God observed, God saw, God heard their groaning in sin, the distress of their predicament, really the distress of our predicament and our groaning in sin. And He acted by sending a deliverer. Jesus, the Son of God, sometimes called in the Old Testament the angel of the Lord, came to give deliverance by means of His obedient life and His substitutionary death on our behalf for all who would repent and believe in Him. And so the application at this point is simply to turn from sin and believe in Him, to trust in this deliverer that God sent in response to our need, in response to our misery, to take care of the predicament we had gotten ourselves in, much like the predicament that this family has gotten themselves into. 
There's no point in looking for an alternative to the only way that God has provided. There's no, there's no hope in searching for another name than the one that God has given among men by which we must be saved. It would be futile because there's salvation in no one else. So where is Christ? He's all over this. He's the one who redeems. Abram and Sarai grew tired of waiting for the Lord to fulfill his promise of offspring, and so they took matters into their own hands. I don't know what you're waiting for. I don't know your stage in life. I don't know the challenges that you face. Maybe like Abram and Sarai, you're waiting for the Lord to give you a child. Or maybe you're waiting for the Lord to give you a godly spouse with whom you can have a child. Maybe you're waiting for the Lord to provide for some material need, some relational need. You're waiting on the Lord for something. And I don't know what that is. I don't know what you're waiting for, but don't be like this couple who took matters into their own sinful hands, looking for a way to help God fulfill His promise. Even if it isn't a very God-honoring way, God will provide all that He knows we need when we actually need it. And our greatest need, our need of redemption, He's already provided. He who did not spare His own Son but gave Him up for us all, how does it end? How will He not also with Him freely give us all things? We are in good hands, and we can wait, and we can wait a while longer. God hears, and God sees, and He is compassionate, and He responds in His good timing. Let's pray. Father, as we finish up this passage that challenges us with, in many ways, we recognize that uh, we struggle to wait. We struggle to wait on You to fulfill Your promises, to keep Your Word, to take care of us, Your children. I pray, Father, that you would help us to wait with joy and that your provision for us in Christ of this reconciliation that we have with you and Him would be glorious and satisfying regardless of anything else we might lack. We rejoice in you and we rejoice in forgiveness in Christ, peace with you, and that we get to be called your children. We pray for your blessing now in Jesus' name. Amen. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ Himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. God bless you all. If you want to pray with someone, they'll be up here to pray with you. Otherwise, you're dismissed.